Laura, thanks for being here today. We're going to do a question and answer style podcast, but before we get started, we'll just do a, a check in with you to see what's going on in your life. Not much. I'm just uh, getting adjusted to training and coaching at uh, Tiger Fitness in Cincinnati, sort of north of Cincinnati. So that's been about three months now. So we're definitely adjusted to that and the team is adjusted and uh, having a ton of fun there. Um, Summer is kind of a slow time for me as far as when, as far as like doing any seminars. I just did one recently, but I don't, you know, summer's kind of hot. So I just mm-hmm. had to take that off, but getting ready to start getting ready to get ready for the North of the border that we're hosting in November and then starting to prep for getting everything set for the women's pro-am in April. So that's kind of what's going on this summer. Is, uh, is your gym public or private? It's public in a way. That Tiger Fitness is a supplement company, so they promote it through the week, Monday through Friday. It's free to the public. So Monday through Friday from 8 to 6, anybody can come in and train for right. free. So uh, that's pretty cool. And then our, our my athletes that train um, powerlifters and whatnot have access 24 hours to it. So it is a public gym in some sense, but also private in another sense as far as, you know, like full access to the gym. But yeah. How much work goes into putting on a meet? It's, it's a lot. It's definitely a lot. And every, (laughs) I've been hosting meets now for more than 10 years. And every time I do it, every year, I'm like, this is going to be my last year. This is going to be my (laughs) last year. I'm going to pass it off to somebody else or just retire from it. Um, Because every time, especially like probably like the month leading up to it, there's just so much additional work. My life is already busy enough as it is. And then if you add on the preparations for a meet, I'm always just like, oh my gosh. But then once the meet happens, I'm literally like, this is so fun. This is so awesome. You know, you see everybody get to benefit from it and have a really good experience. So then I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm going to do it again. You know, so it's, it's a ton, it's a ton of work that people don't realize, you know, to host a, a meet, a meet that's good, you know, and lifter friendly. What's the, in your opinion, what's the difference between a bad meet and a good meet? Um, a bad meet would be like just a meet director that doesn't put like pay attention to the details, the things that the lifters need. Um, as far as like the environment, the equipment in the in the warm up room, uh, different things like that, and then just the way the meet is run on meet day. So, you know, do you run a clock? You know, a lot of people might get upset about like the one minute time clock, but it really keeps the meet moving quickly, and it benefits the lifter. It's not about like let's try to get out of here as quickly as possible. It's more about like you know, making sure that you as a lifter aren't sitting there in your wraps for too long because someone that's going ahead of you is taking three minutes to get up to the platform. Um, it just makes things run efficiently and it makes it so that you don't squat, let's say at 9 a.m. and then have to deadlift at 7 p.m. or something yeah. like that. You know, no one likes to do that. So uh, little things like that and then having good judging that's consistent and fair, you know, so making sure that you're bringing in the right judges, uh, just little details like that that make the make it a good meet compared to you know not not so much but you know the the women's pro am like for example is a great meet and it, that I have to attribute that just to the the women that come the lifters yeah. that come and make that atmosphere the way it is you know and make it such a well known thing so lifters themselves can make or break a meet you know as far as just the effort and camaraderie that they put into it what are the things that you've learned going on because it's always interests me going to meets because as you said you can go to meets and 
nothing is prepared. You just turn up and hope for the best. But when you first started to now, what are some of the things, oh, I wish you did at the start? As far as a meat director or as, um, oh man. I mean, early on, we, you know, I'd say a lot of the things are the same. Things have just improved as far as like little things as like having a screen so that the lifters can see where they're at in the order, you know, things like that, instead of having to like sit and just listen to the announcer or, um, having more equipment in the warm up room for the, for the lifters, you know, I'd say like back in the day, like I, I had a lot of, I went to a lot of the top meets, you know, so I was, I was going to the power station Mm pro-am and the WPO and all these, all these meets that had like the best of the best at the time. So luckily, like I had like my own experiences with that to be able to start off really well. It's just over the years, it's just grown into like, like I said, better technology, like having the screen for the lifters, having the, the, the light system that is cordless, you know, so there's not cords laying all over the ground, you know, um, better venues, you know, having like big open space, you know, the first, uh, women's program we had was in the sweatshop that was just the one side. So that's maybe 3000 square feet of open room. And, you know, so we had to like really, the warm up room was so tiny, you know, but it was still, it was still a great meet though. Yeah. I remember, I remember some of the West, like I remember Josh Connolly saying like, that was one of the coolest meets I've ever been to. And not because it was like, oh, this venue is so huge and so nice or yeah. all this stuff. It was just because of the atmosphere and the, the, um, the lifters and how into it they got, you know? So like I said, like, even though it was like not an ideal or like a beautiful space and, you know, all the top equipment, it still was a great meet. So the only thing that's really changed is this better, better technology, you know? Um, then how do you select good judges? Cause this is always a, a a big topic for squat, especially is the most judged lifts out of them all. Yeah. Um, (laughs) I always found it's very hard to blame the lifter over the judges. For but sure. From a yeah. meat director point of view, how do you try to ensure that the best people are in the place? Um, you know, you just kind of now with the popularity of social media, you can kind of see online like different means that are happening. And you start to realize like this federation, like what I'm seeing is, you know, not a great, like great meets, great judges that is consistent and fair. Um, and then the federation that we had been using, like started to just kind of, there wasn't much structure to it. Like, you know, you want, you want judging and, and meets that are lifter friendly and that the lifters have fun with, but you also want it to be legitimate, you know, and be something that people respect and take seriously. So you just kind of like observe like what meets are happening and what's, you know, what's being put out there. And then we made a decision that to go back to the APF, like that's what I had started with when I was Mm -hmm. first got into powerlifting, everybody lifted in the APF. Like I remember going to senior nationals and that was like, it was like the world championships. Like all the top lifters were there at that meet because it was, there weren't 50 different federations. So it was, it was really nice. Um, and they were very structured and organized and fair. So we kind of made this decision to go back to that. And mostly for me, it was because I really want to, you know, obviously give access to everybody as far as raw lifting, single ply, multiply, but I really wanted a federation that, that 
you know, advocates for multiply lifting. So the APF was kind of where we decided to go because they really advocate for that. And then they're, they're very structured without being too much. You know, some Mm -hmm. federations are a little bit, a little bit much as far as their rules and regulations and whatnot. Um, But the APF seemed to be this good balance of everything. And, and I knew that like one of the main guys that kind of judges everywhere and hosts a lot of the meets was Eric Stone. And I want the first meet I ever did in 2005 was his meet. Yeah. So it's kind of crazy that things have kind of come full circle, but he, Eric's uh, really good, very organized, does a really great rules briefing and, and is just a good resource for the rules. Cause I think sometimes you get meets and I remember back in the day, like, you know, certain federations, I'd be like, this person is sitting in the chair. I don't even think they're certified and I don't think they really actually know the rules. Like, I don't know if they know what technically in the rule book is parallel and breaking parallel, you know? Um, so me wanting to kind of help keep multiply alive and grow it back. I was like, you know, one thing that'll help is making sure that, you know, the squat depth is good. It's not like burying people, but it's legitimate and that people are seeing, oh, like a raw lifter that has no experience with multiply could look at it and say, that's totally respectable. And instead of looking at it like, you know, what a joke, you know? So that was kind of important to me to have good judges so that we could help legitimize and uh, multiply lifting and and sort of attract some of the raw lifters that, you know, might look at it and say, like, I want to try that. Is that hard to balance the raw and multiply in one meet? Is it hard to get the sequence correct? Um, it's been actually pretty good because um, if you look, I mean, most of our meets, I'd say, are a, you know, if you look at multi- multiply and raw, like overall, like mm-hmm. in the in the in the United States or something like, I'm not sure exactly what the percentages are, but it is more raw raw lifters. But when we have meets, I would say it's almost the other way we were, you know, it's where it's like 50, 50 almost, you know, we have a ton of multiply lifters that come to the meets just because I think people know like this is a meet that's going to be lifter friendly. And I'm not going to go to this meet where I'm one of the only like maybe three lifters that are multiply. So they, they're fearful of that because if those judges are looking at these raw lifters all day that are just going ass to grass and then they come up with their, their equipment on and, you know, just barely break parallel, which is all you need to do. You know, they, they know that if they come to one of our meets that, um, it's going to be pretty well blended so that they're going to have a better chance that those judges are going to know what they're looking for, you know? Yeah. It's a, it's a hell of an interesting, uh, area to get into, especially from someone who is lifted to get into running meets. Um, was it hard at the time when you started being a competitor and a meet director? Yeah, it was. I would say, I think I started hosting meets. It was just bench press meets. So okay. that was like pretty easy um, back in 2010, I believe. Yeah. And They were in July, right? Weren't they? Yeah, they yeah. were in the summer. Yeah. yeah. I mean, bench press meets are really fun to host like because yeah. it's the squat that really makes everything stressful as a lifter and as a meet director, yeah. you know. Um, so take that out of it and and hosting, it's pretty fun. Uh, so it didn't really affect my training. It was just once a year. Yeah. Uh, and then 2012 is when we started having the pro-am. So that was like the last couple years of my like competitive lifting career that I started hosting like big meets. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that if you, you know, that mixed with coaching more mixed with traveling to teach the seminars for Louie and stuff, it just, 
that's when I never really intended to retire, yeah. but I had all these other things going on that were interesting me and um, that I started finding passion in. And it was just seemed like a logical step to say like, this is what I want to focus on now. And, you know, I was pretty well satisfied with what I did. There's what you could always say. Yeah. I wish I would have done more, but um, hosting, hosting the meets and teaching the seminars and doing in coaching just seemed like more of a passion to me and where my focus was, you know, it was taking a lot out of me for sure. Yeah. Yeah. To uh, segue from that into coaching, I wanted to uh, talk with you about GPP because mm -hmm. it seems to be a pretty misunderstood area of training, especially for powerlifters. I'm going to other sports afterwards, but in your opinion, uh, what role does GPP play for a powerlifter? It's more important than people think, you know, because GPP, like for a different athlete, like, like football, basketball, whatever, um, what we do, especially with a conjugate power lifter, mm -hmm. that's their GPP, you know, like they're like doing the barbell movements and special exercises. That's, you know, that's, that's what they need for general physical preparedness, where that is our sport and our specialty. Like we're, you know, other athletes are so specialized that they need, you know, need this as their GPP, where as power lifters, if your training system is right, where you're doing a blend of the barbell movements, the, the compound movements, mm -hmm. plus special exercises, what would GPP be to a power lifter? And that would be more fo of a focus on the aspect of GPP that is like conditioning, you know, anaerobic, aerobic. Um, mobility, things mm -hmm. like that, that I think people totally overlook. And I wouldn't say that I have a whole lot of regrets for powerlifting at all. I'm happy everything went the yeah. way it did, but I do wish I would have focused more on that aspect of GPP, sled dragging, like not being afraid to do like conditioning, like bike sprints or, you know, just being more well-rounded. Um, you know, I wish I would have been in better condition because since my retirement from powerlifting, I focus a lot on conditioning and um, when I had retained a lot of my strength after I retired from powerlifting and was doing more of the conditioning, I found that I had, I felt better as an athlete. I, I was retaining my strength, but also felt more conditioned. And I, and I think, you know, I always think back, I'm like, would my deadlift have been better? Cause that's the one lift that I had that I wish would have, I would have been able to show what I was capable of. And mm -hmm. I didn't. And it was like, okay, well, why not? And I think it was just because it was the end of the meet. I was fatigued and I just wasn't in shape, you know, I was in shape lifting wise, you know, lifting wise, but I, uh, you know, wish I would have been in better condition. So I think that that's one aspect that power lifters can often take for granted is, uh, being a better athlete as far as GPP goes, you know, doing, making sure they're doing, you know, different aspects of, of GPP sled dragging yeah. or prowler or, you know, different bike sprints, rowing. I mean, like different things like that. I'm not saying like to go do, a long CrossFit walk yeah. or something like that, but, um, making sure that, and that's one thing that with the West side conjugate system that I'm so passionate about teaching to people, especially like raw lifters, equipped lifters, is that the system is laid out to have so much of that, like all built in the yeah. recovery aspects, um, you know, with the special or the, yeah, the special exercise days that we do, the small workouts that are just, those are meant for recovery and injury prevention or injury, 
you know, recovery, um, everything's built in as far as the repetition method, you know, everything's built into this one week so that there's no need for like build, deload weeks and yeah. things like that. So, um, what's nice about that is that it's, it's sort of built in, but one thing that's, I think is missing that people that at a power lifter needs to take it upon themselves to do is more like conditioning and mobility, but mobility, not meaning like to sit in static stretch for, yeah. you know, long periods of time, yeah. you know, but, um, but being more mobile, you know, especially with the wide stance with equipped lifting and things like that, you know, that there's super important. Were you surprised of when you stepped back from competing and worked on conditioning, the improvement of the quality of your life and how you didn't lose any strength? Oh, absolutely. I was just like blown away by how I just had this misconception in my own mind. Nobody, you know, told me this, but like that I, if I did anything extra, you know, aside from my main strength training workouts, that that would affect me negatively. Whereas like it would just have built, helped build a bigger work capacity, Yeah. you know? So I think people are, I don't know, they, they start to feel fatigued from a workout and they think I should do less. Oh man, I'm really beat up where it's like Louis is a prime example of needing to do more, yeah. you know, having a bigger work capacity and adding more tools to your toolbox. So doing, doing more things, you know, doing, you know, a hike or like, you know, anything like that, just to, to make sure that you're not so specialized, yeah. you know. How important is training density for GPP, trying to fit in as much as you can in a certain time frame? To give you an example, those there's people who can get everything done in speed day in an hour, 15 minutes. Right. Then there's other people who take three hours. Yeah. How important is that to performance? That That's one aspect of GPP. Like, so if someone wanted to improve their GPP, I always tell them, start to, yeah, condense your training times. You know, I'm not saying like right off the bat, like go from three hours to one hour, but yeah. start to, and so like if I have like clients, I'm actually coaching. Like if I have a personal training client or something, cause I have a lot of personal training clients that, that I do the conjugate system with. Yeah. So for example, I'll have like on dynamic lower day, like we're on a timer, you know, they have to do, they have to be under the bar, picking the bar up on, let's say a speed squat in mm -hmm. every 45 seconds. So they'll get through a 10 doubles in six minutes and 50 seconds, well, you yeah. know? So, and that's with the proper weight that they're supposed to use, but it, it took time to yeah. build up to that, um, that level of conditioning, um, then right over to the deadlift and doing the same thing every, you know, 30 to 45 seconds doing uh speed set. So they're, they're getting done with both things, the speed squat, speed pulls and 15 minutes. And that leaves them 45 minutes plus to do the accessory work, which is more than enough. You know, so really it's just a matter of planning and discipline. So a lot of times people go into a workout and they have no plan as far as whether it's max effort or dynamic effort, they have no real plan. So they're just kind of like, uh, what weight do I need? And so there's all this, you know, counting or they get into groups that are too big. Yeah. Um, and then you, no matter how fast you go, your rest period then is going to be three, four five minutes between your speed squats, whereas it would benefit someone more to or benefit the group more to split up into two groups, you know, maybe even if one group is helping the other, the group, because mm -hmm. there's weight changes, there's, if you're using a monolift, there's um, height changes and things like that. So splitting up into groups would be more beneficial to everyone. Um, and then switching off that way. Uh, but it's, it's, I can't, I mean, I can't stress enough the importance of, of the time frame of your workouts, you know, so we're talking, you know, that's, you know, speed day, 
you know, that's going to help your conditioning as far as keeping those rest periods short. But even on max effort day, you know, going into the workout with a plan, I talk about this a lot of times in the, in the seminars is, um, you know, a lot of times people go into a workout, you know, with a conjugate system, there's so many variations. You might Mm -hmm. not do that, that variation for months and months and months. Um, so that's why it's ideal to log your workouts so that, you know, you can look back and say, what did I do on this variation? And that way you have a a plan to go like a plan for that training Mm -hmm. session instead of just like throw one plate in the bar, plate, quarter, plate, quarter, plate, quarter. And next thing you know, you're doing 10 to 15 total sets to get up to a max instead of being able to plan it out to where you're doing seven or eight or at most nine total sets to get up to that one rep max. Um, that makes a huge difference. I could, you know, adding three or four sets to that could, you know, add another 15, 20 minutes to your workout. Um, so when it comes to volume, you know, that's incredibly important to have a plan. So you're not doing too much volume on max effort day and, um, you know, hitting those three attempts at or above 90% and then shut it down and you move on to accessory work. But too many times people place so much emphasis on, hitting that one rep max that they, they'll spend an hour getting up to the one rep max. Yeah. And next thing you know, they have no time or at that point, no energy mentally or physically to get put into their accessory work, which is the more important aspect of the training session. So uh, it's just a matter of planning and discipline and, you know, just being in shape enough to, to handle those rest periods. So I always tell people use a timer, literally use a timer mm-hmm. cause you'd be so surprised at, how much time, you know, wasted time you're spending in between sets or doing too many sets. But I think one of the best ways to improve your GPP is on dynamic, especially dynamic lower days. Mm -hmm. I mean, I I think mostly because I did that video with um, Louis for the combine Mm -hmm. years ago. And I remember being like, this will be no problem because I, I don't rest very long between my, my speed sets. Apparently I did because we, when we were on a timer like that, now granted that timer was every 20 seconds, but, um, going immediately from doing the 10 doubles right over to the platform to do the, uh, doubles on speed work. I had never done anything so hard ever. Like it felt like, I mean, I wasn't doing conditioning at the time, but it felt like I had just done like the hardest CrossFit wad. And I was like, oh, okay. So this makes sense. This is why, this is how I can get in better shape without doing any extra, mm-hmm. you know, a ton, a ton of extra conditioning or cardio or whatever, you know. So that's one of the most important days in doing it that way. Do you have a, an amount of people per group you find optimal? I'd say no more than three. You know, two would be ideal because if, you know, if you're trying to keep it, I'd say, like I always tell people, like the most that should be is like an EMOM, like every minute on the minute is when you should go. Um, but like 45 seconds would be ideal. And really, even with every minute on the minute, that only really leaves time for maybe one one other person. Yeah. So um, like I said, at three at most, but ideally just two people going back and forth and two people that are of similar strength levels. Um, so there's not too much going on as far as weight changes in between. Did you find the higher the level of GPP, the better it carried over to your form because you could replicate it better? Oh, for sure. Like, because when people are not conditioned, uh, your form starts to break down, Mm -hmm. you know? So if you're in better condition, you're, you're better able to mimic your technique every single rep of every set. Because what you'll see is, if someone's not conditioned and you're keeping them on a timer, let's say, um, by the, by the time their last sets, 
get, you know, come like the form starts to break down because they're just so fatigued. Whereas someone who is a conditioned athlete, if you watch them, their sets almost get better. So yeah. even by the, the last sets, their, their sets are better, mm. more explosive uh, than their, their first sets. So if we switched from a powerlifter to a crossfitter, and again, I'll just generalize that maybe powerlifter focuses on strength, crossfitters on conditioning. How do you rein back in GPP? and maybe put more emphasis on strength or do you like how does it change or differ for a crossfitter uh for a cross i mean a crossfitter crossfit is the sport of gpp like i remember louis louis saying that a long time ago when he you know first got approached by crossfit to yeah. to teach the seminars and he started watching crossfit and you know attending some of the events and he was like this is they're just doing gpp because there's there's they're not specialized yeah. at all like i mean talk about not being specialized they are trying to be good at every single thing so that could you know that's gymnastics work that's uh long endurance it's mm -hmm. shorter like metabolic conditioning uh but also barbell stuff you know in crossfit there they have to be strong as well because there's plenty of events there's always going to be events and their CrossFit competitions, even from a low level to a high level where they have to be maximally strong. So really with, with CrossFit athletes, it's, there's not a whole lot of difference, you know, yeah. it's just making sure that they incorporate a, a strength training method that there's, that is ideal to get maximally strong, you know, so they're, they're very good at doing, at doing dynamic effort work because they're so used to, um, that level of conditioning yeah. is just having the the overall like posterior chain strength to be able to maintain technique. It wouldn't be the conditioning that would break them down. It would be more about the special exercises to help them maintain that level that level of technique through all the work sets. Um, but yeah, CrossFit athletes be incorporating you know a strength program is is fun, you know, yeah. because they can handle that. If anything, especially on max effort, you have to get them to slow down. Like they're just ready to go, 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 go. And also for them, it's definitely getting them to not take too many sets because they'll take a million little yeah. sets to get there. Uh, but yeah, CrossFit athletes, you know, we've had a lot of experience with working with CrossFit athletes from just the average person that comes into yeah. a CrossFit class to the highest level games competitor with doing the uh, conjugate system with really good success because it just it just makes sense because like I said the conjugate system is a like a full system of GPP where they're so used to doing that you know so it's it's a great a great like blend of the two. I imagine too as a coach it gives you so much feedback in a short space of time so every week you know how strong where they're weak at, where's their conditioning at, right. and you can adapt and pivot on a dime. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you can do a lot of different things. You know, we have them do where CrossFits try to, or, or powerlifters get kind of, you know, so focused on being specialized and like, I only do conventional or I only do sumo where CrossFit athletes are down for anything. I yeah. can do one week or doing sumo, one week or doing conventional and, you know, they just get better from doing everything, you know? Did you find um, across the board any unique uh, weaknesses or imbalances for CrossFitters, even though they're so generally strong? Was there anything that was surprising to you working with them? Um, mostly, I mean, a lot of uh, posterior chain, yeah. you know, spinal erectors, glutes and hamstrings, because so much of what they do is quad dominant, you know, wall balls, overhead squats, front squats, 
you know, um, every, everything like that. So like trying to get their hamstring strength up and, you know, doing good warnings for spinal rectors and things they're great. Their upper backs are super strong because yeah. they do a lot of pulling stuff, you know, pull-ups and, uh, ring muscle ups, you know, things, you know, they, they have great upper back strength, but, um, mainly developing their posterior chain glutes and hamstrings, especially. Uh, did you have a hard time initially getting them to buy in how you train athletes or was it just a natural progression for them? Um, it, it is, it is hard. Cause I mean, they definitely like, since they do so much Olympic lifting, they're so used to like volume. So volume percentages, you know, reps, things like that. So they're, they, they automatically think like, well, if I want a front squat or back squat, you know, it should just be reps and reps and percentages and whatnot. So it's hard to get them to, you know, look at a, a wide stance box squat, you know, and say like, this is going to benefit you as well. Um, but having the, the CrossFit gym where we would, um, do CrossFit classes and incorporate all of, all of a, a, a standard West side conjugate system, it was, it was pretty cool to see even on the smallest level where just an average person could come in and start to, and think like I, they, their initial interest was to come in and just do what most people think of CrossFit is just like a, like a wad where you're just laying on the floor dying afterwards, yeah. you know, basically just a lot of cardio. And then to then eventually being more focused on being interested in maximal strength, you know, now they're in, you know, caring about what they can deadlift and what they can bench press and whatnot, you know? So, um, I think that it just takes a few people, you know, doing it and the, seeing the result and it catches on. But I think a lot of people, you know, Louis is such a huge figure, even in the CrossFit world that I think no matter what level is uh, the small or high level, I think people are definitely open to the idea, whether they do a full like traditional conjugate system or they're someone that's like, I'm going to add bands to my squat clean today mm -hmm. or, or whatever, you know, they're doing some aspect of it. Um, I just think that, you know, a lot of them could benefit more from doing at least adding in a lot of the special exercises for posterior chain would be, you know, incredibly beneficial to being more balanced and not so specialized. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, when you're training athletes, do you find a big difference from outside of strength gains from a youth athlete to just say an athlete who is more progressed in their career? Would you train them similarly or would you have a different approach? Um, a younger athlete, like talk about specialization, like, you know, when, when kids are young, they, maybe some parents will get them into a lot of different things, you know, the, there's a reason behind why people always say like, Oh, get your, get your kids, even your young sons into gymnastics and wrestling and all these things. Even if you want them, if you're really hoping that they're going to be a great football player, yeah. you know, they should do other things so that they aren't specialized because, you know, G, GPP for them is doing a lot of other things, yeah. you know, and, and at that age, super young, it's doing other things, you know, body weight movements, gymnastics, um, you know, wrestling, grappling, things like that. Um, so from a young age, uh, it, I'd say more, if I, if I have someone who's younger like that, I would do more things that are to help build their stability and injury prevention. So unilateral work, you know, different things like that, instead of like a higher level athlete where it's like, okay, we're going to do, 
giant camber bar good mornings with bands from the front, all these things, yeah. you know, that are a lot, you know, more just a, a higher skill level at the, a younger athlete, we would do things that are just more to build them to be able to endure training, you know? Yeah. yeah. One of my final questions to wrap up GPP is with all the different athletes and we got powerlifters, crossfitters and youth, um, do they have a certain selection of exercises that they keep in reserve and use towards competition because they know, okay, this is going to carry over the best for me or especially for CrossFit, does that vary because the games change every yeah. year? Like, is there any way that you can go, we know that this will be universally uh, carried over to different exercises? I think, I mean, no matter if it's CrossFit or powerlifting, uh, that depends on the athlete. Like, because you have certain things like that you find over time that that carry over or that are like your testers and your builders. So I think that's true for any any athlete, you know, s specifically individually, whether they're a CrossFit athlete or a powerlifter. Um, powerlifters especially, there's certain things that you just find. You're like, this is an exercise that I know um, at least will either carry over or show me that I'm getting stronger. So you start to, and that's why like when we get close to, like when we have like meat prep, there's certain exercises that we know, like those are testers um, or the builders are the, the ones that we do prior to meat prep. You know, everything leading into, into a competition is like, let's test the strength, focus on special exercises to get stronger. Um, whereas CrossFit, it's literally you have to be ready for anything. So you have to keep it very well-rounded, like throw all these different things at them and not necessarily say these are the things that only things that we're going to do. Um, it'd be more in the, in the, in the accessory work, yeah. you know, that leading into a competition that we make sure that everything, you know, everything is well-rounded, you know, doing unilateral work, doing hamstring directed work, um, you know, some level of, you know, sled work, some level of GPP that is outside of their, their realm, you know, um, is, but like I said, it's, I think it's just more individual on an individual mm -hmm. basis and figuring out for yourself or for the athlete, what are the things that are going to benefit them most outside of, you know, peaking time and inside. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, anything else you want to cover in GPP? Uh, I think so. I think we're good. Okay. Yeah. Um, we'll move on. We've got a, a bunch of questions. We haven't split up <laughs> one are structure questions that we have ourselves and then one are coming in from oh, yeah. fans and followers. Um, one of the first questions I'd like to ask is what are some of the biggest mistakes you see with the squat? Um, with the standard squat and like not necessarily a box squat, um, would be, oh man, it's the, the pickup. You know, so that's the biggest thing when, when I see people like your, your pickup for me and what I see with other athletes is the way you pick it up is the way you're going to squat it. Um, so there's not, a, for some people, I mean, some mm -hmm. people really focus on perfecting their pickup, but for some people, I don't think, I think they're focused so much on their technique of the squat and not realizing that if you're not, you know, your feet aren't rooted into the ground, if you're not all the way underneath the bar to pick the, to pick the bar up. If you don't put pressure up into the bar before you pick it up, um, you know, you're going to pick it up and it's going to, it should feel the way you can tell if you picked it up, right. Is the, the way, how heavy, how heavy it feels. Yeah. So even my heaviest squats I ever did, like if I picked it up and it felt easy or if it felt light, relatively light, then I knew it was going to be a good squat. If I picked it up and it felt really heavy, I knew that I didn't do one of those many aspects right. Um, but for me, what I always thought about was it's like a ritual coming up to the bar, 
the same way every time. The way you stand up to the bar, you know, up against your chest, you're looking down at your feet and making sure they're in the right spot, rooting them into the ground, making sure they're angled right. Um, and when and getting under the bar, making sure that your hips are fully under the bar. You're not like tucked with your pelvis under, but your hips are underneath it, but your whole body is underneath the bar. And as you're underneath the bar, you know, putting pressure up into the bar. So you're putting pressure into the bar, almost like you're pulling the slack out of the deadlift. Because mm-hmm. um, a lot of times I'll see people, they'll be going to pick up the bar and there's no pressure at all. And then all of a sudden they jam their upper back into the bar to pick it up. And then it's unstable. They shake a lot. Um, so I think a lot of times when people, you see people really shaky, um, Mm -hmm. when they're, when they pick the bar up or when they're descending, a lot of times that's just not being really in full contact with the bar and putting that pressure up into the bar, like you're pulling the slack out, but you're pushing the slack out. And then once you're fully engaged with the bar and you feel that weight kind of distributed through your whole body, then you can squeeze your leg. Really, at, at that point, all you need to do to pick the weight up is to just basically squeeze your glutes, squeeze your quads, and squeeze your hamstrings, and just and squeeze your knees basically to fully lock out. Um, is is all is all you really need to do actually to get that bar out of the hooks. Yeah. So in being fully locked out, when people do sort of that like soft pickup where their knees are still bent, you're, everything's resting on your muscle then. So then you're fati- pre-fatiguing your, your hamstrings and your quads already. Uh, whereas if you want to be like, like fully locked out so that you can let that weight settle into your whole body and it should be resting on your bone structure. So um, a lot of times when people pick it up and they're not fully locked out, they're in a hurry to get that, that weight down. So that's why I'm always, I'm a, I'm a fan of the squat command because that kind of forces you as a lifter to let the weight settle for a minute. Yeah. Um, make sure you're fully stood up, let that weight settle. And, you know, if you if you feel like you're in your toes when you pick it up or you're like too far forward or whatever, um, taking the second to re-rack it and take it again. Cause you want to be, like I said, once you've done all those things that I talked about before, making sure you're, you're fully underneath the bar and you're almost pulling the bar back to the back of the hook so that you're not riding the hook up when you pick it up. You're fully underneath the bar and you pick it straight up and you're already like stabilized in the middle, in your midfoot, basically. So I could really go on and on about the technique <laughs> of that, but all of that plus the way you brace, basically, the, the air that you take in, not taking a big breath of air. That's one mistake I made early on in my career. And I could see it in the photos because my cheeks are full of air. And that's not really where you want the air. You really, we didn't know much about bracing back then, but making sure that that breath isn't, it's not necessarily a big giant breath. It's more of like a a calculated breath down into like the lower part of your stomach. You're trying to fill your low back and your stomach with air. Um, So, yeah, there's a lot of details about that pickup, but I'd say that that's one of the biggest mistakes people make is the way they pick it up. Because once you have a good pickup and you're set in the right spot, everything about the squat, you just have a lot better chance of being successful with the squat and then initiating that squat by pushing your butt back and then pushing your hips open, knees out and pushing the floor apart to descend. So it's a good rule of thumb. If you start messed up, your squat's going to be messed up. For sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Focus on the pickup, perfect the pickup and in uh, your dynamic effort days, all those reps, that's a great uh, day to practice that. Like, on, on the, you know, I, the way you do one thing is the way you do everything. So on dynamic day, making sure that every single set that you do, even when you're fatigued, especially when you're fatigued is um, having a perfect pickup. That way, you're, you know, you're not only thinking about that on your, on your heavier days. 
What are some of the biggest mistakes you see people with resistance bands? Uh, mainly, <laughs> well, number one, picking the wrong like percentage of tension, you know, depending, everybody is different. Like, so that's the other thing that the mistake people make is the way they, they set them up. Um, so every, every setup is different. You might have a monolift for one person, you might have a power rack for another person. So I, when people, I'll have athletes ask me like, how much band should I use? And I'm like, well, what's, what's the way you're setting them up? Like, yeah. you're going to have to like take a second and figure out like whether it's like a luggage scale, um, or literally standing on a scale or setting like setting up a scale. But I think a luggage scale is a pretty standard kind of easy way mm -hmm. to figure that out. Um, and figure out what with your setup, how much tension is for each band and whether you're doing bench press or squat or deadlift. Um, so picking the right band tension too. So figuring out what, how you're setting up your bands and what those tensions are and then picking the right amount of tension. So sometimes I'll see people maybe doing like speed bench if they're like a, 225 venture and they're using doubled monster mini bands like for speed work it's a bit it's a bit much you know yeah. um just because you know for most power racks doing a doubled band a uh, monster mini band is probably about 110 pounds of band tension and so if we're trying to stay in the 25 ish percent mm -hmm. a lot of times you know whether it's dynamic or max effort we try to stick around 25 percent accommodating resistance if it's just a regular training day and we're not talking about like circa max or um, strength, speed or anything like that around 25%. So getting, getting those band tensions set and figured out depending on how you're setting them up and then using the correct amount of band tension. Do you ever find that some people are not strong enough to get the benefit out of bands when they first start? Yeah, definitely. I mean, if, um, if someone like just all out strength, like, you know, if someone can't squat a hundred pounds, you know, it's going to be hard to figure out what 25 pounds of band tension is. Yeah. So really doing more of straight weight work with, with that, with that athlete is beneficial before moving into bands. So mm -hmm. sometimes, you know, they're just like literally not strong enough to handle the 25%. There's not a, a small enough band for it. So, um, or someone might have a decent amount of strength, but just no stability, yeah. you know, so, um, working on stability, like through a lot of times, they're going to get that corrected through special exercises. But, um, and then until that point, just working on, you know, just straight weight, like you can still do box squats and things like that, you know, but with, with, without accommodating resistance, but, um, a lot of times for them, chains would be a little, would be a little bit better. Mm -hmm. So they're not having that overspeed eccentrics and that, and that the band tension pulling them down mm -hmm. at such a fast rate of speed. So chains might be a better option for them. Another common question we get is that people seem to take the percentages as gospel. Yeah. Um, from your point of view, is there a fluctuation that you aim for 25%, but if it's above or below by a certain amount, it's not critical? Right. Yeah. If, um, if anything, like if, so sometimes like they might, well, my max, uh, squat is 400, but this band is this much and this band is that much. And I'm right in the middle. What should I do? You know, yeah. um, I would just err on the lighter side, unless you're a more advanced athlete and they can handle five more percent band tension to go up. Um, then I would just say like, just err on the lighter side, focus on speed, you know? Um, but it doesn't have to be like 
like, I know what you mean. Like there's some people that are like, oh my gosh, I'm like right in the middle of these two tensions. What should I do? Just err on the lighter side. Like I said, unless you're like an advanced athlete that can, that can handle going up a little bit. Um, there was a question in the squad I forgot to ask. And it's if, uh, what to focus on if you have trouble getting out of the bottom of the squat? Um, I know it's hard because right. it's it could question. be technique, like yeah. it could be technique, but it, it also would be, a, you know, that's out of the bottom of squat. A lot of that is abs. So when you're coming, you know, just like at the bottom of a deadlift, you know, uh, usually when someone's having trouble at the bottom of something like that, it's like, I'll, I'll, I'll you know, series of questions. I'll ask them, well, what ab work do you do? And most of the time they look at me and they kind of look like, they kind of look down like, <laughs> oh my, like that's I, not much is what yeah. they typically say. So that's usually the number one thing um, is that they don't do much ab work or they might just get stuck in the habit of doing one easy ab exercise, like where it might just be like, I just go over to a band and do some crunches and it's like, um, okay, well, there's the problem. So that's why like, usually when I lay out a program for people, it's, I try to keep it structured where we have one day that's like heavy, low rep ab work. So, I mean, Louie always preached that a lot. It was just heavy ab work, you know, whether it's on the decline or standing, something that's heavy in the low mm -hmm. rep range. Um, those are like intense, heavy um, ab movements. And then a day for obliques, mm -hmm. you know, going hard on, on, on obliques, not just like kind of going through the motions and a lot of variety of, of exercises, not just, you know, a standard, like maybe just a dumbbell side bend, but a lot of different variety of oblique work and uh, static ab work, plank variations, um, you know, holds different things like that for uh, static ab work. And then a day for like your, your typical like repetition ab stuff, whether it's a band or cable crunches or, um, V ups, you know, I, I a ton of different variety yeah. of ab work. Um, so I try to like keep it organized like that so that nothing's getting neglected. Um, but that's assuming that someone's doing it, you know, yeah. cause usually people get to the end of the workout and that's like, you kind of get to that point and you're like, Oh, I don't feel like doing it or maybe I'll do it later and it just doesn't get done. So I would say a lot of times that people have a, a problem at the bottom, they're neglecting ab work. They're not doing any form of like good morning. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, those are the two biggest things, you know, okay. we could, we could break it down into like technique, you know, maybe they're in a bad position at the bottom. Yeah. Um, or maybe they do no hamstring work. They're just relying on their quads to get out of the bottom. Um, so that's, it kind of depends too, if they're a raw mm -hmm. lifter and equipped lifter, but I just, without knowing either one, I would say focus on heavy ab work and heavy good mornings. The next one is a touchy one and it's box squats and no box squats, regular squats. Mm -hmm. Do you have a ratio you do, especially with people starting off? Cause I think this is what confuses a lot of people who watch Lou read our books in that. A lot of the time he refers to people who are pretty accomplished, but uh, what is your ratio with people who come in the door? Do you solely do box squats or do you mix it up? Um, I mix it up, um, but I do start them a lot with box squats because they really, it's safer in the mm -hmm. beginning because it's controlled. It's, you know, I can control the depth at which they're going. Um, we can focus, it's a focus more on building their posterior chain, mm -hmm. which will help them into squat, but it's not working their technique of the squat, you know? So the re even at a higher level with, with athletes that I work with, it's more of like 50, 50. I, we always box squat on dynamic effort days. Yep. Um, but on max effort days, I do have athletes kind of do 
pretty much if it's off season, a blend of like kind of 50, 50 of a box squat or a, a variation or a free squat variation, because, you know, you just need to practice your technique. It was something that I really needed when I was, um, competing yeah. was that technique with the free squat. Um, cause for me, technique was everything. So, and I think it's just something that like that people need more of is yeah. technique work without doing too much, you know? Um, and, but with the, a newer athlete, you know, a lot of times I'll get them started on the ATP, like belt squat, box squats, um, or belt squat, free squats, yeah. you know, cause it's a good way to work on their technique without having the added, you know, pressure of having the bar on their back. And so they have a million things to think about. Like, let's just work on the technique of the squat before we add a bar to your back. So there's kind of a progression that I like that way is to start them on, on the belt squat, um, uh, belt, box squat or free squat into then doing more of, um, then I like to use a safety squat bar, you know, cause yeah. having the straight bar on their back to do the box squat is, you know, you got to think about the, the upper back and stuff where you, you still have to in the, in the safety squat bar, but it's a little less to think about. Um, but I have them do a lot of, a lot of box squats just to build their, their foundation before, before getting ready to squat to make sure that, cause if I just threw them into like free squats, narrow stance, a lot of times their knees are buckling in, you know, cause they just don't have that strength. So mm -hmm. more, I would say it's probably 75% or more box squats for a newer athlete. Um, and I guess even for higher level athlete too, if we're doing only box squats on, on dynamic effort day. Yeah. yeah. There's still a, an importance to bring in uh, full squats. Oh, for sure. I mean, a lot of time to, Make sure that you're you know working on that technique, working on the pickup with a straight bar, and doing um, not to say you couldn't do free squats with specialty bars, but uh, working on that technique in your in your typical like competition stance. Okay, um, we're going to move on to uh, social media questions, so <laughs> they're all over. And uh, at the start, I am not going to call out people's Instagram handles because <laughs> they're, it's probably too hard to read I, some yeah, of them. Yeah, yeah, I, I'll struggle regardless. <laughs> Um, some of these are going to be hard to answer, Laura, but we'll, we'll I'll try. I'll try. <laughs> uh, the first one is what is the last thought before taking out a record breaking squat? Uh, like I, when I was competing, I definitely was kind of known for like, you know, some people are like real intense, like for in between every single attempt or they're listening to music or, or whatever. But I was more of like, I needed to be more like calm and lighthearted. So I was always like talking to people and, um, you know, almost like trying not to focus on it, you know, until it was time, like until my name was called until, my, until I started getting my knees wrapped, you know, then I started, you know, the kind of switch was flipped, but I was more about thinking, thinking about all the, all the cues, like the way I was going to pick it up, like thinking about the different cues and how I was going to execute the lift. Um, and then just, thinking about like what, what, depending if it was a, like, I think that question was like what, the record breaking, breaking squat. So it obviously was important to me. So it was yeah. like thinking about like how this was going to change the day or change my life, you know? And, you know, to me, like, I like pressure, you know, so it, it you know, I, I thrive off that. So I kind of like put the pressure on myself a little bit about like what that was going to mean um, to make that lift and how important it was to execute every little thing perfectly. So it was more about just thinking about everything that I needed to do just right. Or if there was something that was leading up to that day that was, that I had been kind of 
messing up on or whatever, if I was struggling on in training, you know, thinking about that one little thing as much as I could. But for the most part, I try to just not think about anything, stay lighthearted, laugh with people and, and whatnot. And then as soon as the knee started to get wrapped, it was go over everything and um, just feed off the energy of the crowd. I loved that. I loved, you know, just like when I was bodybuilding, I hated all the everything leading up to it, the diet and everything, but just to be in front of a crowd and which is weird. Cause I'm not really like a people person, <laughs> yeah. believe it or not. But like, I loved feeling that, that energy of people watching and, um, like knowing that they wanted to see me do something good. Like nobody's, I try to tell people all the time, like newer athletes that are going to do their first meet and they're, you know, worried about the crowd watching them. Like, but you don't realize that that crowd is they they're cheering for you. They want to see you do something um, that's really cool that they probably don't do. So that kind of helped help me out a lot. I you know that's kind of what I would be thinking. <laughs> <laughs> when you first began powerlifting, did you ever imagine that you'd squat seven seventy five? Absolutely not. I mean, I remember going when I even uh, when I was thinking about starting to powerlift, and I went to the Arnold Classic. And I saw Amy Weisberger squat, I think like 534 or something like that, mm -hmm. somewhere around there. I just, I could not wrap my head around a female being able to do that. Like, I was just like, that is unreal. So I never imagined that I would do that. I was just getting into powerlifting and I um, probably at that point, let's see, that was in March, I probably had just started getting like briefs and stuff like that, because that's, that's just kind of what everybody did was you just get all the gear back then. So, um, yeah, I had no, I had no, no idea that I'd be able to do that. Amy was the first person yeah. I saw do that. And then my first meet that I ever did, Becca Swanson was there and squatted like probably seven something. And so, you know, and then it started to become like, okay, this is something that people do um, that women are capable of doing. And, uh, I was starting to pick up powerlifting really well. So, you know, the idea was the seed was planted, but I, I still, you know, definitely wasn't sure if I'd be someone that would be able to do, to do that. <laughs> Did you realize how much of an impact that you would be making for female powerlifting when you were lifting the weights you did, or were you kind of not paying attention to that and reflecting on it afterwards? I didn't really realize then because there were so few women powerlifting, like overall in general, there were so few. So I wasn't sure if it was going to stay that way, become less, I mean, hopefully more. Um, I don't think I really realized that until I think the first time I hosted the Women's Pro-Am in 2012 and how many women came. I was like, you know, I was so used to like, if I did a, a, a meet, I'd be like one of maybe the only one or maybe a couple women that did a meet. But then when we had the women's pro-am and there was 43 girls, I think that signed up wow. for it. I was just like, this is really cool and something that I want to keep doing. And then like my own training group started to grow with like different women and, and women were moving to Cincinnati to train in the training group. So it was just like, that's, you know, again, that was again in like 2012, 2013. So then that's just kind of where my focus started going, uh, without even, it's not that I didn't intend for that, but it's just, it just naturally went in that direction. Yeah. And then, you know, by the time 2014 came at the end of 2014, I had done the York, the York pro invitational or the West side invitational. And I was like, this is, um, 
this is what I need to focus on right now. There's women that are, that I'm helping who are getting really strong and I'm, I'm enjoying seeing them have success just as much as if it was myself. Mm -hmm. And then it was just, it just kind of like just organically happened that way to where it was just like what I am doing on the platform is then attracting more women to powerlifting and being stronger and it's growing and people are wanting to do these things. And the things that Amy and Becca had done for me, as far as setting that example, I, you know, I was hearing from other women that right. I was doing that for them. And I was like, that was kind of cool, you know, cause that was, you know, what was kind of paved the way for me. So, um, that just kind of became my focus and my, and my passion. And even now to this day with like coaching athletes, like remotely or in person, I just have so many, so many more women than I do men. Um, I think that's just, you know, by, by chance and by coincidence and by just kind of what I've fostered and what I, and what I like to do. So. What were your initial motivating factors I'd imagine for getting the powerlifting and what do you want to be remembered for? Uh, my motivating factors, especially getting into powerlifting were, uh, that I, obviously I wanted to be stronger. I love that feeling of, of being strong and like uh, as strong as I, I personally could be. And then once I started looking at what the world records were in my, in my weight class and starting to realize like that, like if they could do it, you know, there's nothing, no, re no reason why I couldn't try to do this. My motivating factors at that time were to be the best in the world. And I had never felt that way about anything else. I, you know, grew up doing gymnastics and I, um, you know, ran track and played some soccer and, uh, got into running in college. And I, I never had had that feeling of anything I did where I was just like, I literally want to be not, not only the best that I can be, but best in the world. So that was like, that was my driving factor was to, um, do whatever it took to, to be the best in the world. And I, like I said, had never felt that way before. So that was, that was everything that I wanted to do and just set an example and, and, you know, be a part of this niche group, you yeah. know, that I finally felt like I was, you know, a part of, you know. What makes you feel strong to find out however you like? Uh, well, obviously being physically strong, like when I, you know, when I was, you know, competing now, I, you know, obviously I'm not competing and maybe <laughs> I'm not what I would consider strong, but physically strong, but also like what makes me feel strong is, uh, being even in my, in my life right now, you know, obviously I'm not trying to be a power lifter anymore, but I still train that way, but just being disciplined and accomplishing something for myself, mm -hmm. you know? So, you know, my challenges nowadays are totally different than when I was powerlifting and trying to be, break a world record. You know, right now I'm, you know, like my set a goal to run a thousand miles this year. Yeah. Um, and you know, I'm already at 800. Wow. So it's like little, like little things like that, like that make me feel strong. Cause you know, that to somebody else is super easy, you know, my, to, you know, other people that, you know, actually run. Um, but for me, that was just, it just keeps me in line. It keeps me, um, doing something and uh, striving towards something. Yeah. So setting these goals and these challenges, I'm constantly doing that. Like sometimes it's just monthly. It's like, okay, every, every day this month I'm going to do 
you know, last year it was, I'm just going to run a mile every day that in this one month. And that, so that kind of what is what sparked it. And what's cool about that is, you know, kind of, I used to run before I did powerlifting. Um, so I'm kind of going back to that, but in a, to as a totally different athlete, you know, having done this style of training, you know, I did a half marathon earlier this year and felt like completely different than when I did it when I, uh, 20 years ago, yeah. you know, just because of the way I train now, um, and keeping strength training in. And I did no strength training when I was in my 20, like early twenties when I was running, you know? So, so yeah, for me, um, what makes me feel strong is setting goals for myself, um, particularly physically, you know, I mean, mentally too, or whatever, but when we talk about like strong, it's like setting these goals for myself that, um, you know, that are completely different than powerlifting, um, but still keep me accountable and keep me disciplined and, um, setting a positive example for athletes that I train. I have to ask about the half marathon. How was your time compared to your previous time? I, you know, I don't, I would ha I wish I, I mean, I don't know how much record they kept of that back then, but I don't know what, I, I don't think it was that much more if it was more. Cause I, did it in two hours. And I'm like, I don't think I was that, like, if I was, I don't think I was faster back then. Like, so, you know, I'm 42 now. And I think you running the same as if I was in my early twenties and feeling I, a lot better afterwards. Like I recovered a lot better afterwards. That's awesome. Yeah. What advice uh, can you give women who think they shouldn't lift? Sadly, I, I mean, it's, it would, I rarely come across women that say that anymore just because, uh, it's become so much more mainstream to lift, even if, um, because even like these other forms of, you know, kind of fad training styles or facilities that open up, um, that with different, uh, like training styles or whatever, even if it's cardio based, they're somehow still incorporating some like lifting to it, um, which is pretty cool. So it's, it's, I think nowadays it's a lot different, you know, people, women are seeing it a lot differently and they're wanting to do it. I, I rarely, like I said, come across someone who is like, oh, I don't, I don't want to lift, you know, so, for, you know, really they're probably interested in something else. And even if they're interested in something cardio based, you know, just having a conversation with them about, you know, the science behind strength training and what it can do to actually make them a better you know, if they're a marathon runner or, or something like that and how it can actually make them better. And just even if they, if they're not interested in like, um, doing something else like cardio based, uh, just for life in general, just mm -hmm. the, the longevity aspect of strength training and how it can, I mean, not that it's going to like make you, I don't know that it's going to make you live 10 years longer, but if it can improve your quality of life when you're older, um, just by being stronger, a lot of times to that, you know, that's enough to kind of at least make them see it differently is just the functionality of, of strength training. And, and also, you know, hopefully it's, we're starting to get past the, the, the idea that women have might have that they're going to get bulky if they, if they lift weights, you know, it's, it's a complete myth, you know, you, you know, really have to like put a lot of effort into getting bulky, um, whether with your training and with nutrition. Yeah. So, you know, we're kind of like, I think we're hopefully we're in that we're almost past that point that that women are, you know, nervous to strength train or um, or get bulky. <laughs> um, do you still come across any 
kind of I want to say pseudoscience because it was in the mainstream for so long when it comes to female training that uh, you have to constantly know that's not correct. Is there anything that still comes up today or is pretty much everyone is a lot better informed? I, th I think a lot of people are a lot better informed. Just just like I said, based in CrossFit helped that a lot. And, you know, I kind of credit CrossFit a lot for, um, you know, just exposing that to so many people. And, you know, now, like I said, all these other forms of whatever type of training that have come along um, and, you know, them incorporating strength training. I think, you know, I think we're, like I said, at that point where it's, it's just not really yeah. a question anymore. Yeah. Um, what are some of your favorite books uh, applicable to lifting? Well, usually like if I'm trying to like, if, so, if, if I have like, let's say a client or something like that that wants to learn more, I automatically just direct them towards um, the book of methods um, and any of the like specialized book that, that Louis has written, just because he's taken all of, you know, the, the, the really sciencey books that like, like super training or science of sports training, you know, like that I wouldn't really like tell because they're probably going to read that and they're, they're going to look at that and be like, uh, you know, yeah. but to most people, you know, Louis written a lot of the books, especially like the book of methods, um, that help people. Cause a lot of, I'll have clients that'll, you know, I'm programming conjugate stuff for them, but they want to understand it a lot, you know, better. So mm -hmm. I usually, direct them towards any of Louis's books, you know, if it's a, if it's an athlete that I have, maybe like one of the jumping books. Um, but definitely any of, any of Louis's books because he's taken all of that knowledge that he's gained and everything he's read and put it into the terms that we want to hear, you mm -hmm. know, that the way we train, because it can be really hard to read all the different, you know, like I said, super training and books and stuff like that. And like, and like, say like, what do I, what do I do with this information? You know? So he's taken all that information and said, here's what you do with that. Awesome. And the follow on, um, what's some of the best advice you got from Louis? Uh, Louis, like definitely like it was mostly when I would have like hard times, like when I was, I, I had a year, uh, or several meets in a row where I bombed out. Um, it's a lot, like a lot of times people that like weren't around during that time and know me now don't realize like how, how many times, you know, I, I had meets like that. Um, for whatever reason and how he would, um, I remember after one of the meets, he, I thought for sure, I was like, I'm going to get kicked out. Like, there's no way that, that he's going to let me keep training here if I keep bombing out. Um, but it wasn't like that. Like, I think a lot of people might feel like that he is that way. Like if you're not producing, then you're out of here. Um, but he also knows people's potential and, you know, and, and so he, I remember he told me like that he had, I think 11 bomb outs in a row or something like that. Um, but then one day it just like clicked and, um, things just kind of came back around. You sometimes you just have a, you know, kind of a slump like that. And obviously we don't, I don't want to like, even with my own athletes, like they rarely do bomb out because just cause we, we learn so much more, yeah. we know a lot more now. Um, but it, it, it can happen. We don't want it to, to like, we don't want to like justify that happening, but it can happen. Um, but like just his compassion and his like encouragement, you know, to that things happen like that and just to stay with it. And, you know, I, I never wanted to be that person. Like he would say that it was just like a flash in the pan, like the brightest stars burn out the fastest. I was like, you know, I, I could have easily just said, you know what, like this is, I'm, I'm, I'm done with this, yeah. you know, cause that was pretty, that was in 2000. 
seven, I think. So I was only two years into powerlifting. So I could have easily just been like, you know, just given up. But he was very much about like, this is not like a, a quick sport. Like, it, you know, this is for, to him, it was lifelong, you know? Yeah. Uh, so he really just, you know, preached that, that these are the things that are going to happen. It's not linear. It's going to be up and down and, um, you just, just have to stay with it. So I think I, I, I really took that with me because with athletes that I coach now, it's, you know, when I see that I, and they get frustrated and they get upset and stuff like that. And it's just like, it's just like, you just want to tell them like, it's, everything is going to be okay. You don't really know how to explain that. Like, like this is why it's going to be okay. And this is what we're going to do. You know, sometimes you just have to like, just have to keep pushing through, just, just keep pushing through that because it's going to come back around. When your bench progress slowed, what did you do to get the heaviest all-time benches? I, I totally remember when it slowed because I was really stuck like around the f mid 400 range, even though I knew, you know, just based on certain movements I would do like or or whatever, like that I was capable of a 500 pound bench, but it just like wasn't happening. So um, had to just really start overloading. Mm -hmm. So, you know, a lot of times and this is in a bench press shirt. So. I know some people are like, oh, no, you should only bench straight weight and only bench to your chest and, and whatnot. Like I definitely would bench to my chest a lot in a shirt. Um, but for me, what helped me was I wanted to be able to take that weight out and feel like it was light, you know, because in a bench press shirt, especially like a lot of times you're handling weights that are, you know, a couple hundred pounds more than what you can do without the bench press shirt. So just like the start of the squat, like I like how it has to be perfect. So you want to pick that weight up and feel like it's, it's light. Why well, I want to take the, the bar out, um, on the bench press and feel like it's light. So overloading for me was huge. So doing a lot of movements that were, you know, partial range of motion, but were super heavy in band tension, mm -hmm. um, or with chain weight was what helped me. Like I did, I was doing weights that were at the top end, 650 pounds, you know? So then when I took out 500, I remember when I took out 500 at the first time I, after doing all that, that, um, when I took out 500 at the meet, I just, once I took it out, I knew I was going to get it because yeah. it's just the way it felt in my hands. Um, not to mention the fact that when you're overloading, like with accommodating resistance, I'm building my triceps. So the bench press shirt, you know, given that you're wearing it correctly and I'm um, getting the most, and it's tight enough, you're getting a lot out of the bottom. But once that, once you get to a certain point, it's, it's a lot of you, like it's you having to lock that weight out. So it was just like, how can I improve that? And that was to, um, just overload and get my triceps as strong as possible. So different variations to two or one board, but with a lot of heavy band tension or a lot of chain weight, um, is what, is what changed for me. How many, uh, conjugate sessions a week for competitive CrossFitters? I, I still have them do four, you know, so, um, a max effort day, a, uh, dynamic effort day for both upper and lower, but that's not to say you can't get creative depending on like what, what they need. You know, some, sometimes it might be like an overhead movement, um, or a movement that, you know, it might be their max effort movement by, might be like a, a squat clean or something like that. So it doesn't have to be like, let's do all the, you know, 
heavy deadlift, heavy squat, you know, squat deadlift on dynamic day, um, plus all of your volume in Olympic lifts, you know, that they're doing aside from that. Sometimes you can incorporate that in just so that it's not too much additional work. Um, so it's still doing the principles of the conjugate system, but maybe applying the movements differently depending on what they, what they need. Um, and just being creative with those movements, but I, I still have them do four days of, uh, conjugate. Uh, what got you into lifting? Uh, bodybuilding. So that was like my segue into to powerlifting was bodybuilding. And I uh, trained at a powerhouse gym in Toledo. And there were a couple of powerlifters that trained there and who suggested doing like a couple, doing like a non-sanctioned meet. Those were like really popular back then, like push-pull. And so that was kind of my first exposure to powerlifting was doing a couple of those uh, non-sanctioned meets. And that's where I met Jason Fry. He was, he lived in that kind of in that, uh, Northwest Ohio area. And so I met him there and he was wearing a bench press shirt and, you know, so I started like kind of learning about it and then picked up Louis VHS tapes and started mm -hmm. watching those. Um, and then decided to pick out, I was like, well, maybe I should do like a real powerlifting meet. And yeah. so picked out a real powerlifting meet and got with some, uh, like world champion powerlifters up in Detroit and started training with them. It was just like the perfect storm. I, I really had the best like intro into powerlifting because those guys had been around forever and they gave like one guy gave me his squat suit and it fit perfectly. And, you know, so it was just like, I had like all the right tools like immediately. And I realized, and this is back then. I mean, nowadays when there's so many, you know, so much more access to to powerlifting gyms and stuff like that, you know, that people still have a hard time if they want to get into equipped powerlifting, they still have a hard time accessing that because, um, there might not be equipped powerlifters in their area. Mm -hmm. You know, so we're trying to like, you know, it's always, that's in addition to, uh, promoting women's powerlifting, <laughs> promoting equipped lifting and, and getting more people knowledgeable about that so that people do have access to it if they want to get into it. And they're not like, hitting this barrier of, I can't get into it because I literally have nobody to help me because there's nobody that knows anything about it near me. So. How, how do you think the strength world perceive you being a world champion female powerlifter? I think I, I've really been met with a lot of respect. You know, I, I can't recall other than like, you know, people I remember on YouTube commenting back in the day, like, dumb things, you know, as far as like a woman, a woman in, uh, powerlifting, of course, you know, there's just people that have no clue about it that just want to say, oh, like she must be a man or something like, you know, just yeah. dumb things like that. But I think over time, um, more so like in the last 10 years, it's, it's just become more accepted and people are just know more about it. Cause they're just seeing more, you know, social media is bad for a lot of things, but it's good for, you know, exposing people to stuff like that. So now, you know, it's more of a, that's pretty, that's awesome type of thing. Instead of being like, why would you want to do that? Do you, you know, does your back hurt? You know, you're, you're not going to be able to walk when you're 50 <laughs> type yeah. of thing. Now it's like, no, oh, this is good. Like strength training is good. It's actually good for you. Um, you know, so things have changed a lot. Were you treated differently being a woman at Westside surrounded by mostly males? Uh, my experience was not, it was good. I had a great experience and, um, with all the, all the, all the guys at Westside and, um, you know, so my, my experience was good. I know, you know, <laughs> I trained with Karen Sizemore a little bit later and she told me about some, 
some crazy stories, but, um, but that's, you know, Karen, we know yeah. Karen, but, um, my experience was really good. And, and I always was treated really well, like in, you know, taken care of really well. And I would try to work in and train with the guys as much as I could, if I, you know, if it made sense as far as the strength yeah. levels, but, um, no, I had great experiences. Well, that's all we got. Yeah. Awesome. Um, to wrap up. Is there any upcoming seminars or anything you're going to be doing? I am in September. So September 17th, I will be in Roy, Roy, Utah, which is near Salt Lake City. Um, and then the next day, September 18th, I'll be in Phoenix, Arizona. So I'll be out west then. And I'm trying to plan um, a seminar um, at Tiger Fitness. So in Cincinnati at, at the gym that I coach at in October. So, um, I'll be looking for that, like probably October 22nd. Um, I'm excited about like finally doing one in Cincinnati, mm -hmm. like so that I can, you know, it's in my home gym and I've got everything that we need and, um, just try to make that as big as possible. So those are kind of the things I got coming up. Um, we've got the North of the border happening, the, the powerlifting meet, um, that we're hosting, uh, November 19th. So that's kind of, it for the rest of the year. Um, those are the only like seminars, things that I have coming up, but on my, on my website, queenbeepower.com, that's where like, you'll see seminars posted and, um, all that information on my, on my website. And if they want to come check out the gym, should they get in contact with you? Or is there a yeah. I mean, they can come, like, like I said, Monday through Friday, eight to six, it's, it's a public gym. They can come at any time, but if they want to, you know, if, I'm only there like certain times of the day, morning yeah. or afternoon. So I would love to meet people that want to come in so they can absolutely get a hold of me and let me know when they want to stop by. Awesome. Laura, yeah. thank you. Thank you.